Well, greetings to all of you. It's very good to be here on this particular day. As I uh, think about it, I, I can think of some of the faces that I know across the world, uh, up in Canada, way out in Agatuna in uh, Newfoundland, or down in South Africa, Port Elizabeth, perhaps Manila, the Philippines, and of course all over this country. I think of certain faces that I I recognize and I can see them in my, my mind's eye, and we are able to assemble in this way. Not the way that we wish that we could assemble, but nevertheless it is the, what, what we have available to us at this time. You know, it's amazing how fast, how quickly our world can change and has changed. What a difference three weeks can make. When you think about it, it's only been about three weeks, maybe four weeks. For some parts of the world, maybe a little bit faster than that. But for the most part, in North America and Europe, it's all changed in a matter of about three weeks. And during this time, great cities have been locked down. Manila has been locked down. Uh, London is pretty well locked down. Uh, New York City is as well. Millions are being told to shelter at home. And that's what we are under right here in North Carolina, except for certain essential uh, duties that we might have. And people all, the, all over the world are getting sick, and many are dying. Uh, it's not the huge numbers that we saw during the, we didn't see it, but that uh, we read about in 1918. But this is not over yet, and we don't know how this is going to play out. What we do know is that this is a very nasty virus for those who uh, do get sick with it. Uh, many of them have underlying conditions to start with, but I was listening to Governor Cuomo on the uh, radio as I was coming to the studio here, and he was pointing out that the length of time that people are on, on the ventilators is, is something like 14 to 20 days or 21 days, 22 days. It's a long period of time. It's much more than normal. So it is a nasty bug for certain individuals. Thankfully, most of us, if we do get it, we'll be okay. And our young people, our children, are going to be okay. That's wonderful news that we as parents don't have to worry about our little ones uh, getting a, a deadly disease. If they get it, they'll, they'll get over it. In fact, they probably won't even notice it very much at all. So we're very thankful for, about that. I wanted to read a few reports from around the world, what's happening in different places. For example, down in Australia, Mr. Rob Tyler, our regional director, it says, Australia has closed its borders, domestic and international, and most shops are now closing except for essential services. Airline industry is in real trouble, and tens of thousands of people are losing their jobs as businesses shut their doors, many of which will never open again. The government is telling people to stay home and not to have any group functions or gatherings not even with family who don't live in the same household. Over in the United Kingdom, John Meekin writes this. He's one of our correspondents from there, one of our ministers as well. He says, The UK government is announcing today a radical reappraisal and complete turnaround in its approach to combat the corona pandemic. Suppression is now seen as the only viable way forward to minimize deaths which nonetheless are predicted to be very high. So this means maximum lockdown and the maximum of social isolation. I think probably most of you are aware, but uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of, uh, of England, 
uh, has come down with the coronavirus. He's doing well as far as we know, but uh, he has it, and it uh, means now as the eye, and it means now as the eye of the storm is expected to be in the next six to eight weeks. The actual uh, village hall is now closed till August. That's where the little congregation meets down in southwestern England. And he says, so we could not have a church service there even if we wanted to. Other halls we might use uh, might be expected to follow suit. This is changing the nature of society and the world economy before our very eyes. We are entering a very different, dynamically changing world than before. This surely is a catalyst-type event that will drive the fulfillment of prophecy. It is uh, not the end. We, we want to make sure everybody understands that. We are not at the very end as yet. But this is going to have ramifications for the fulfillment of prophecy going forward. Mr. Simon Muthama from Kenya was, was mentioned in the uh, announcements by Mr. McNair. Uh, points out that all government offices are closed, and he points out that the Kenyans are suffering double blow of coronavirus and locusts. Uh, new locust swarms have invaded again across the borders of Somalia and Kenya, uh, which have destroyed at least 2,403 metric tons of food crops, according to the report from the agricultural officer. So this is a major disaster in that part of the world. Uh, Mr. Christo Botha from South Africa had the opportunity of uh, seeing him and seeing the office uh, not long ago, back in uh, February, late February. South African office staff acted while we were on our way back from the U.S. Uh, after we were informed that we would be subjected to a 14-day self-quarantine at home. There were a number of our men that had come home after the um, the, the aborted uh, uh, ministerial conference that we were going to have, and of course we had the Council of Elders that we did go through with, but we canceled a general ministerial conference, and some from overseas had already arrived, but going back to Australia, the Philippines, and, and uh, to South Africa, they were under quarantine for 14 days. With the coronavirus cases in South Africa, now, now nearly 700, our state president, Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, declared a national lockdown for South Africa, which will be effective for 21 days, beginning March the 26th. Bill Long in Michigan, here in the United States, wrote, he says, earlier this week, Michigan Governor Whitmer issued a stay-at-home order for all residents until April the 13th, so we will not be able to even meet in small groups of 10 or less until the order is lifted. We had a very smooth and uplifting live stream last Sabbath. Our congregations in various places live streamed to their members. It says, I was able to set it up from my home to have one man give the opening prayer for one location. Malcolm Murray gave the de- sermonette from his house. I gave the sermon from my house. And another man gave the closing prayer from a fourth location. Then I opened up the live stream for fellowship. Brethren from all over the states of Michigan and Ohio, were able to see each other and chat for a while. It was very encouraging to see everyone so excited. I had several brethren tell me on Sunday how inspiring it was to be part of the live stream. So we are adapting, we are doing what we can, but we are assembling in a very different way than what we've had to in the past. 
I called for this day of fasting and prayer for the Living Church of God members uh, for two reasons. First of all, we have this COVID crisis. It's a serious crisis in our world. It's changing our world, as some of those reports have mentioned. But also because Passover is right around the corner. And we may have trouble concentrating with all the things happening around us, concentrating on looking at our own selves and finding out what's wrong with me. We are not here to, to condemn others. We are here to look at ourselves and say that, what, what do I need to change? How does the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, how does that affect my life? And what am I doing as a result of it? So let's begin with the most important of the two, and that is Passover. It's easy to become distracted, as I said, and not uh, appreciate the importance of the day that is now less than two weeks away. The, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, John the Baptist was, was walking with a couple of his disciples, and he saw Jesus on a, a short distance away, and over in John, the first chapter, I'll read that. Very important passage, really, when we, we think about it. You know, uh, Mark opens up his first chapter. They didn't have chapters then, but he opens up at the beginning there. He said, you know, repent. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there was a strong message about the kingdom of God and a message to repent, to change, to turn around and go in a different direction. Here in the book of John, we see another very important part of the very beginning of Christ's ministry. And so John, uh, John the Baptist, saw Jesus, it says, And the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And among other things, Passover is about sin. It's about the forgiveness of sin and how we can have our sins forgiven. But, you know, you cannot have sin if you don't have law. Because sin, as it says in 1 John 3, 4, is the transgression of the law. We live in a world that is filled with sin. We have sin everywhere, every country. There is no country without sin. A violation of the law of God. We violate God's law regularly as people, as nations, hopefully not you and me, but uh, we still have our problems. We still come up short, don't we? So, this is about sin, among other things. In uh, 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, we read a little bit about uh, the, the sacrifice there uh, of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Remember, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. What did he mean by that? Did he mean that well, there's a cute little lamb-like fella, or that we should pick up a lamb and carry it in our arms. Is that what he was talking about, or was he talking about something more serious there? Well, here in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, because this was written about the time of the days of unleavened bread. <clears throat> and he said, Get rid of the leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Gentiles at Corinth, made the following statement right after that. Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, let us keep the feast, 
not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here's a New Testament command to Gentiles, therefore let us keep the feast. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ is the beginning, you might say. Without that sacrifice, we're dead in the water. We have no chance whatsoever. But we have a responsibility to respond to that sacrifice by putting the leaven out of our lives. And leaven was a type of sin. It typified sin, uh, a vanity of being puffed up. And we are to be deleavened. We are to be humbled and not be puffed up. And so, in the Apostle Paul's words here, he says, Let us keep the feast, and not with the old leaven, but with the new, you know, with uh, the unleavened, I'm sorry, not with old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we find that Jesus Christ is our Passover, and we have a responsibility to respond to that sacrifice by repenting of our sin, by putting sin out of our lives. <clears throat> Over in Luke, the 22nd chapter, by the way, I don't have corona, I have a little bit of allergy. If I have to clear my throat a little bit, I hope that nobody worries about that. <clears throat> we have a lot of uh, pollen here in Charlotte, and I had this even before I left for my trip back in February, so uh, don't worry. Uh, Luke, the 22nd chapter, we want to read a little bit about what happened on the night that Jesus was taken into custody to be crucified the next day. You see, God counts time from sunset to sunset, as we understand. And so, on the night before he was crucified, he kept a meal with his disciples. What was that meal? Well, let's read here in Luke 22, beginning in verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. He says, Go and prepare the Passover, the Passover meal. This was a meal that began back in Egypt when the children of Israel had this special meal. They killed a lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost and over the, the, uh, the head of the door, uh, the lentil there. And they ate the lamb that evening. They stayed in their houses that evening. And during that night, the death angel passed over, and all who had the blood of a lamb covering them, their lives were spared. The, the uh, firstborn in their home would be spared. But all those who did not have the blood of a lamb covering their house, the firstborn in it died. And that might be both husband and wife if they were firstborn, their firstborn child, and any animals that they might have had there would have died. But here it says that, Go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Verse 9. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Luke 22, verse 12. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So they went and they found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the term Passover over and over again. Uh, John used the word Passover in a little different context, and I don't want to get into that at this time, 
But very clearly, Jesus kept the Passover at the beginning of the 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. He kept it that day. And all through that day or that night, from the time the sun had set all the way through to the time he was put in the grave, that was the day of the Passover. He didn't die on just any day of the year. He died on the day of the Passover. And what was done anciently in Egypt with the children of Israel was a type of something to come, a type of a far greater lamb, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the people or the sins of the world, the whole world. Now, how could the sacrifice of one individual be sufficient for us all? I could perhaps give my life for you. Uh, I really couldn't in, in this context, but I could give my life for one person, but that would be it. So, how is it that the life of one individual could satisfy for the whole world. Well, in John, the first chapter, and verse 18, makes an interesting statement here. John 1 and verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any, at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So we see there that Jesus came to declare God, to declare God who we understand as a Father. But he says that no one has seen God at any time. So he has not seen the, the one that we call God or the Father has uh, not been seen at any time. Uh, the Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. But when we go back to the book of Exodus, the 24th chapter, we find something that on the surface would contradict that statement. And yet it's not a contradiction as we shall see. In Exodus, the 24th chapter, and verse 9, it says, Then Moses went up, that was up into Mount Sinai, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, so those four individuals, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. Now, it tells us in the book of John that no one has seen God at any time. And yet here it says that they saw the God of Israel. And there were under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hands. So they saw God and they ate and they drank. Now that's interesting. They saw the God of Israel. And yet the New Testament says that nobody has seen God. Well... We know there are two members of the God family, the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit is a power that flows out from the two of them. But when we go over to Colossians, the first chapter in the New Testament, it helps us to understand that the God of the Old Testament was actually the one who became Jesus Christ. And that's a truth that so few really understand. Many theologians understand it. But they don't really pass that on to people because that has implications. That has uh, implications when it comes to the law of God because who was it that commanded those Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai? Who was it that walked with the children of Israel or oversaw them during that time? Who was it that created Adam and Eve? Well, it tells us in Colossians, the first chapter, verse 15, it says, He... Now, as we will see, it's speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. So, who is the Him here? And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist, and He is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. He is the firstborn from the dead. So, back there when it says He is the firstborn in verse 15, what does that mean? Well, we have it clarified here. He is the firstborn from the dead. And He is the one that created all things that exist, visible, invisible, whether thrones or principalities or powers, whatever it is, He is the one that created them. And there are several scriptures in the New Testament that make that very clear, that Jesus Christ was the one who created everything, that God the Father used Him to create it through the power of the Spirit. And so we go to, for example, 1 Corinthians 10. That's another one of these scriptures that points us out. It's not the only one. But 1 Corinthians 10, it makes a statement that it's hard to understand why people don't get it. It says, Moreover, brethren, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There was water surrounding them, a cloud over them, water on both sides of them. It was a type of a grave, as the Egyptians found out shortly thereafter. It says, All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. So who was that rock that followed them? And that rock was Christ. So we see that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. He was the one who formed Adam and Eve. And He breathed into their nostrils a breath of life. His life is far more valuable than all of our lives. That's how He could give His life in exchange for our lives. Over in Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2. We read here in verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. So we are not to be self-centered. We are to consider the needs of others more than our own needs. As it says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We should care for others. And I, I hope that during this time of crisis, we'll not just think about our own families, but if we live in a neighborhood where there's a widow or someone who uh, is needing help uh, during this time, I hope that we'll remember those individuals, perhaps uh, purchase some food for them and, and be sure to sanitize it and everything like that so you don't give them a virus. But I hope that we will think of those around us. We should care for our neighbors, not just for our families, not just for those who have the same understanding that we may have, but to care for others around us. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is the mind of Christ, to care for others, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross or the stake. Now, back in verse 7, I read over that quickly, but it says, but made himself of no reputation. And the margin uh, points out, there's a recognition of the original word that it means to empty himself. He emptied himself. In other words, of, of who he was as our creator. Now, we don't understand all that process, at least I don't understand it all, but he emptied himself of that, that power and somehow was placed in Mary as a, a tiny uh, seed and grew and uh, became our Savior. His life was worth more than all of our lives put together through an amazing process, but uh, he is the one who takes away the sins of the world, that paid the penalty the penalty of death for you and me and every living human being. Now consider what is at stake here. We live in a nihilistic world. That is a world that is given over to pleasure. Most people are far more interested in who's going to play on the weekend, their team, their football team or baseball team or whatever the team might be, uh, they're more interested in that than they are in why they're here. Mr. Wally Smith uh, gave a program here a couple weeks back. What is the meaning of life? And like the rest of us, we're trying to find a way to get the booklet on uh, uh, your ultimate destiny to as many people as possible. Now, people are interested in the number 666, they're interested in the beast of Revelation, they're interested in all kinds of prophetic things, but to know why am I here, people don't seem to care. Because we don't have as many orders for that booklet on your ultimate destiny as for some of the more prophetic booklets. Why is that? Why is it that people live their whole lives not even knowing why they're living here? It's, it's an amazing thing. But we live in a world that is basically believes that the purpose of life is cramming as much pleasure into it and as little suffering as possible into it. And yet that's not what is truly important in life. We are here for a very short period of time. Uh, even if we live to be 70, 80, 90, 100 years of age, that's a very short period of time. And it would behoove us to know why we're here. Because God offers to us eternal life. Life for a billion years squared. And then squared again and squared again a billion times. He's offering to us something far greater than what we have in this physical world. But right now, because we are physical, we, we think of the, the here and the now. Am I comfortable? Am I happy? Am I doing fun things? We would rather do the fun things than the hard things in many cases. But it's the hard things that oftentimes give us the greatest rewards. In Romans, the 8th chapter, it gives us a glimpse into what this reward is. And verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And this expression, sons of God, is found throughout the New Testament. And it, it's something that, that is more than just a figurative exp, uh, expression. 
You know, Saddam Hussein said that a particular battle was going to be the, the mother of all battles, and so he used a word uh, in a euphemistic way. But this is more than euphemism. This, this is something that is very real. He says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, or these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or sonship, as it should be, by whom we cry out, Abba. Father, Daddy, Father. He says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, then heirs. We know what an heir is. You are going to inherit something. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are going to be joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yes, there is suffering in this life, and there's a lot of suffering right now. Some of it is real physical suffering, but most of it is mental and fearful suffering. For the earnest expectation of the creature eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. My friends, if you haven't read the booklet on your ultimate destiny, please contact our office and get a copy of it. Find out what what the purpose for your life is. It's so important. And I think that even those of us who are, are members of the Living Church of God, we sometimes forget what this is all about. We get so locked in on today and what's happening right now and the entertainment of this world that we, we forget the big picture. And we cannot forget that big picture. And Passover brings it back home to us. It reminds us that the one who created us had to die in order for you and me to have life. And not just you and me, but for the whole world to have that opportunity. In 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, we find instructions concerning the Passover It says here, beginning in verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11:23, says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, For as oft as you you eat this bread and drink this cup, notice it doesn't say do it as often as you want, but as often as you do it, which is according to Scripture, once a year. In other words, whenever it comes around, you do show the Lord's death, uh, proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, taking it frivolously. He was describing here how in the Corinthian church that they were meeting together and some were actually getting drunk on that night and some were 
uh, having uh, plenty of food while others went hungry. They were keeping in an unworthy manner. It was the manner in which they were doing it. Frivolously. Uh, he says, we'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And notice he says in verse 30, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Many are dead. Because they didn't understand the total significance of that sacrifice. Now, we know that Jesus shed His blood, and the life of the individual is in the blood. When He shed His blood, He gave His life. But He also received a horrendous beating before He was crucified. Uh, they, they spit upon Him, they hit Him, they beat Him, they took a, a scourging. Uh, he took a scourging that uh, cut many stripes into His back as well. And over in First Peter... In the second chapter, it says, This is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, Jesus certainly suffered wrongfully, and oftentimes you and I suffer wrongfully. But that's part of our lives. We just have to deal with that. It's part of life, and we might as well get used to it. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you uh, do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, did not revile in return, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. By whose stripes you were healed. Now, notice it says that we died to sins. And if you want to understand that, I'll just send you to Romans, the sixth chapter, in the first seven verses, it talks about baptism and putting to death the old man. I don't have time for that, but we also have the booklet on baptism. It might be good to review at this time of year. Uh, over in the book of Isaiah, the 52nd chapter, 53rd chapter, Isaiah uh, 53. It's a prophecy of Jesus to come and His sacrifice. And it really begins in the 52nd chapter, but it continues on all the way through the 53rd chapter. And I'm just going to read a little bit here for, uh, for the sake of time. Uh, it says, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. Surely He has borne our griefs. And the margin has this, the word for griefs. It says sicknesses. He's borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. And the word there literally meant pain. So the the literal is sicknesses and pains. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So Jesus not only paid the penalty for our sins, but he also took upon him the sicknesses and the pains that we suffer, which really are, in so many cases, the result of sin. And when we really look at, at sickness, we'll find that most of the time it is sin. It may not be your sin or my sin, but it is sin. And I'm going to point that out here in uh, just a minute, just how much it is the result of sin. But Jesus Christ took upon himself all of that pain and that suffering so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins and we also could be healed, that we can go to him. And we have a, a booklet again on Does God Heal Today? And it explains that whole process. But this is important that we understand that because when the children of uh, the, the people of Corinth were taking the Passover in a light manner, taking it frivolously, he said, as a result, some of you are weak and sickly. In other words, they did not have the faith to be healed. They did not have the faith that, that God would intervene for them. And by the way, we're not saying that we should ever go to a doctor. But God should certainly be a part of our, our healing process here. And we should go to God as well. In Luke, the fifth chapter, Luke 5, it gives us a hint as to what fasting is all about. We, uh, we see that it is a process of drawing close to God. We are weakened when we fast, when we go without food or water for a period of 24 hours. Not, not just giving up bubble gum or something like that, as some people do for a period of time, but, but really fasting. We are weakened by it. But our minds are also cleared out eventually. Uh, usually, for me, it takes much of the day, but eventually uh, they get cleared out. And we can really cry out to God in a way that we would not otherwise. And so here in Luke, the uh, fifth chapter, and verse 33, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then they will fast in those days. In other words, the bridegroom, speaking of himself, of Christ, Christ was with them. They were close to God, God in the flesh. They were close to God at that time. And so they didn't need to fast, but once he was taken away, they would need to fast to draw close to him. And that's what we do. We humble ourselves, we draw close to God. It's a powerful tool that we have that God has given to us to learn and to grow closer to him. To sum up the first point that I've given here, the purpose of fasting is to draw near to God. Passover is just around the corner, and we are instructed to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. Yeah, I'll refer to Second uh, Corinthians 13, verse 5. You can look that up. Second Corinthians 13, 5. But Passover is a sober reminder each year of how serious life is. Our Creator, Jesus Christ, had to give His life in exchange for ours. 
That is, if we want to experience eternal life in God's family as His sons and daughters. Our first and main focus must be to humble ourselves, confess our personal sins, and cry out for help to see ourselves the way that God uh, sees us and to change. Now let's talk about COVID-19 for a minute. It's been said that it's no one's fault. Uh, President Trump has repeated that on several occasions, that what's happening is no one's fault. And, and we certainly understand the sentiment there. And uh, uh, our sermonette even pointed out that, you know, we're not here to point the fingers at anyone. But at the same time, we must understand what is the cause of this affliction. And really, we are all at fault when it comes to that. It's not that uh, no one is to blame. We're all to blame in reality. And Proverbs, the 26th chapter, Proverbs 26, and verses 1 and 2, it brings out a principle that I never heard of growing up. It wasn't until I came to understand these things with the church that I began to understand the principle of what we call cause and effect. And notice verse 1, it says, As snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. In other words, there are certain things that are just not fitting. And a fool should not have honor. And then it says in verse 2, Like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. Do we have a curse in our world today? Absolutely. We have a, an evil curse in our world. We have this coronavirus. Uh, technically, uh, it's, it's a virus that causes uh, COVID-19. But the coronavirus that is there. And uh, it is a curse. And you look at it, it's an economic curse, but even more so, it's a, it's a curse for the health and the well-being of people all over this world. And it says here, so a curse without a cause shall not alight. So we need to look at what is the cause of this. And this is not to point our finger at Chinese people or Asian people because we're guilty of the very same things or at least similar things. In fact, we're guilty of even more serious sins in some cases. But let's find out what has caused this. Because if mankind does not repent, and I say mankind does not repent of what has caused it, then it's going to keep happening. Popular Science Magazine, writing about the uh, virus of SARS, uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome that struck the world back in 2003 and 2004, says... And this is a quote from an individual by a virologist named Michael Lay, L-A-I. It sounds like a, an oriental name there. He says, quote, The fact that both SARS and most flu viruses originated in southern China is no surprise. He believes that the region's social customs of catching and eating wild game expose people to animal viruses. And notice that it isn't just SARS, 
but most flu viruses originate there. And he gives the cause because of the animals that they're eating there. The article goes on to say, in theory, SARS leapt from a wild beast to a human when it acquired the molecular keys to gain entry to our cells, explains Lay. To do that, it may have first mingled with a human virus brewing inside another species. A pig, for example, can serve as a genetic mixing bowl when co-infected with two viruses, allowing them to swap genes. You know, I've done a, a fair amount of study on this subject. I don't have a Ph.D. in it. I, you know, I'm just an amateur in studying it. But from what I've read, the pig comes up over and over again. And the other creature that comes up over again is the bat. In China, the horseshoe bat. In Africa, where Ebola has broken out time and again, it comes from a fruit bat. But when we look at these serious contagions that uh, have affected us in recent years, whether it be SARS or MERS or the swine flu or even this COVID-19. We don't know absolutely uh, all the facts about it yet. Even SARS, they're still trying to sort out some things. But, but they recognize that bats and pigs and civet cats and other animals that the Bible describes as unclean, unfit for human consumption. They are all a part of the big picture. Ebola will keep coming back because fruit bats apparently, at least this is the best that we know of at this point, are the reservoir for Ebola. And Ebola is a river over there. It was named after that. Uh, Ebola uh, is a result of these fruit bats touching and eating fruit and then primates like monkeys and others as well as those that might be picking them up off the ground eat them they become infected and then people eat both bats in Africa as they do in China and use it in traditional medicines and they eat the primates in Africa or the pigs or the civet cats or other exotic animals in China and when it mixes in certain animals, especially the pig, it mixes and uh, then, then transforms. It then can be transferred from human to human once the first human gets it. MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, is still around. It's out there. But where does it come from? Well, they believe it started in a bat, transferred it to a camel, which is an unclean animal, and then people eat camels and drink camel's milk in that part of the world. And so we wonder, well, where do these things come from? Marburg, I think it's pronounced, whatever, started in Germany. Again, goes back to a chimpanzee, but I wouldn't doubt that a pig was involved too because they love the pig over there. An English breakfast, a traditional English breakfast, consists of two or three different kinds of bacon, uh, pork bacon and sausage and then something called black pudding. I didn't know what black pudding was until I moved over there or, or started working over there a little bit. It looks like a hockey puck. It's black. A little bit narrower than a hockey puck. sits on your plate. It's made out of blood. Oftentimes pig blood, but it doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it's blood and we're not supposed to eat those things according to the scriptures, according to the Bible. 
You know, the scientific facts are that there's a cause for these deadly pathogens. Whether it's SARS, Ebola, MERS, the Asian flu of 1957, Hong Kong flu of 1968, the swine flu of 2009, or even the 1918 pandemic, a pig was involved. I've, I've read that in the past. It's hard to find that sometimes, but they, it, it was a swine flu. It can be uh, a, a human being or a pig uh, can carry this particular virus. Now, most of us are somewhat immune to that one by now because it's transferred down through time and people have become immune to it. But nevertheless, it's a swine flu of a sort. Now, swine flu, I'm going to read a source here, can affect both pigs and humans. It is a respiratory disease that results from an influenza A virus. The influenza A variant subtype, H1N1, is commonly the cause of swine flu in humans. It has similar genetic features to the H1N1 subtype of influenza virus that causes influenza in pigs. Other main subtypes known to occur and cause influenza in pigs include H1N2 and H3N2. There have been infections in humans with these two variant subtypes as well. In 2009, the H1N1 variant became widespread in humans for the first time. Since 2009, the H1N1 virus has become one of the common viruses that circulate each flu season. Now, we think that the flu is just something that happens by the season. It starts to get a little bit cooler in the fall, and we call it flu season. Why? Well, when you start studying into it, you find these things come from someplace, and scientists know where they come from. That's why they always go to the meat market when there's a problem. When a new virus comes out, they look at the meat market. They ask, what are people eating? And they don't look for wheat or barley or vegetables, they look at the animals that people are eating. And the interesting thing is that all these animals are always in the unclean category. Things that God said to leave alone. When I first started studying the Bible and, and it was pointed out to me that we shouldn't eat certain animals, I, I looked at the pig because it's got a lot of fat on it, probably not good for your health. I had no idea at that time. And I think the world just coming to realize that it isn't just what will happen to you if you eat that animal, but people who, who you know, clean them, that, that butcher them, and that, that handle them all the time, all, all these things begin to come to a place where there is a threat to humanity as a whole because of what we're doing. They often start with a, a bird in the barnyard, transfers the pig, the pig to the human, the human to human. That's how some of these things happen. We're looking forward to tomorrow's world, the kingdom of God being set up on this earth, the kingdom of God ruling on this earth. And when that happens and people start changing their habits, these things are going to fade away. They're not going to keep popping up because of man's decisions. Now, it's easy to point a, a finger at Asia because of the things they do. But what about us in the Western world? What about us in, in Europe and the United States and Canada? What about Australia, New Zealand, some of the rest of the places? Well, you know, we're also suffering not only because of, of these things, but 
we're paying tremendous penalties because of our actions and our attitudes toward things. For example, the LGBTQ plus movement. HIV and AIDS became the first politically correct disease. We don't want to point fingers. We don't want to say that a behavior is causing it because the behavior means people are doing it. So we want to take that away. You know, many of these people need our prayers there. They don't understand. Many, many of them have come from homes that were dysfunctional in some way. And so we don't have to hate people because we are sinners too. And adultery and fornication are also sins. But this whole LGBTQ movement is bringing more sorrow upon people in this world. We have the abominable abortion law in New York where they passed a law that they could kill a child in the mother's womb all the way up to the time of birth. And when it was passed, they cheered and celebrated. And the governor of West Virginia, not West Virginia, but the governor of Virginia, a doctor himself, described how uh, they could actually, uh, a child could be born, maybe have some defects or whatever, and then they could discuss whether to save life or whether to let it die or cause it to die. It's amazing where we have come in our world. And we have no right to point fingers at others when we look at our own sins. We have the drug problem. We have leftist ideologies on our campuses. South Africa, uh, Cyril Ramposa, uh, has forbidden the sale of alcohol and tobacco during this crisis. Interesting. Because in Canada, a, an essential service is to be kept open are the uh, uh, cannabis stores and production facilities. That's really important, isn't it? Whereas here this Gentile in South Africa has more sense. And he realizes that some things are not really good when people have too much time in their hands and nothing but alcohol. This is not going to work out very well. And maybe he's trying to help the health of his people by stopping the tobacco for this three-week time or whatever it might be. That might be a great benefit to his country. Proposition 47 in California. The law passed. The people voted on it. All those wonderful folks in California. I'm from California, okay? So I'm not just throwing stones at them. Born in Sacramento. Lived uh, my high school years, junior high and high school years there. Went to college there. I love California. But it is called by much of the rest of the world the land of fruits and nuts. We all heard that. I heard that how many times growing up. Well, the fine Californians passed Proposition 47 that says that stealing up to $950 is merely a misdemeanor. And so here's what they have now. We have people going into stores, just grabbing stuff, walking out, and nobody will do anything about it. Because if it was less than $950, you can just steal it, just take it. And you can go back the next day and do the same thing over and over again. And there are businesses that are getting concerned. And there are people, as, as one young lady in an article I read, she's in an a outdoor restaurant or something. She's got her computer there and somebody just grabs it and takes it. Well, what are people thinking? 
What are they thinking? Well, supposedly this will give more time for the cops to do something else. You know, my father was a first sergeant in the military. And he said something that, uh, that I found others, prison, prison guards, say the same thing. The person I, I learned uh, about summer camp from that I worked under, have all said the same thing. Stop the little things and you don't have to worry about the big things. You let the little things go and you have to worry about the big things. Mayor Giuliani cut the death rate in, or the, the murder rate in New York City uh, more than half. Uh, from, from up around 2,000 down to about 500 by stopping the little things. And his successors have continued to bring that uh, murder rate down. You know, our so-called Christian leaders disregard the law. They are the ones that are telling us that, well, that's an Old Testament law that we don't have to pay any attention to it, that we can eat the pig. In fact, oftentimes at Easter time they have their... their uh, uh, pancake breakfast with their ham and so forth, or Easter ham or Christmas ham. You know, these are the people who should know better. And they should know better about all these other things as well. Our so-called Christian leaders disregard the law, and our people love to have it so. Notice over in Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30. It's not just the leaders, it's us as the people. He says, now go write it, this is uh, verse 8, Isaiah 30, verse 8, now go write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that for a time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers or the ministers, do not see, to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us we can eat whatever we want to. Tell us we can behave any way that we want to. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Notice Jeremiah, the fifth chapter. Jeremiah 5, verse 30. It says, an astonishing and horrible thing has com been committed in the land. This is uh, Jeremiah 5, verse 30. Now, verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Yes, we love to have it so. We don't want to say anything is sin. We don't want to say this behavior or this habit is wrong. Just tell everybody that we just love them. It's all about love and we just love and, and we let them go on the way. But as it says there, what will you do in the end? We're suffering. This, this, this coronavirus is, is just a symptom of sin. And it's a reminder that there's a consequence for sin. This is just one sin, but there are far greater sins. Frankly, people growing up in that part of the world, they just, that's the way they've eaten. That's what they've done. Just like wherever you are in this country or whatever country, we, we just follow what was handed down to us. We don't know. This world doesn't understand. This is Satan's world. He is the God of this world. Check it up. Read there in the book of John. Uh, the God of this world is Satan.
You know, even in the church in 2 Timothy 4, this isn't just talking about people in the world, it's talking about the church as well. 2 Timothy 4, uh, beginning in verse 2. Well, in fact, verse 1, let's start there. It says, I charge you, therefore, uh, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul telling the young evangelist Timothy. He charged him, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Just tell us what we want to hear. Don't tell us that we're doing anything wrong, because we like what we're doing. This is our world today. And Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21 And we'll read verse 2. It says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. You know, every way is right in our own eyes. Jeremiah 2, verse 19. This was in Dr. Winnale's uh, opening comments. Jeremiah 2, verse 19. It says, your own wickedness will correct you. Okay, if you want to practice sexual behaviors that God said don't do, then you're going to suffer from sexually transmitted disease and worse. Broken hearts and all the other problems that go along with it. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backsliding will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing. Yes, it is an evil and it is a bitter thing. The the pill that we have to swallow for our actions. That you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. No, there is no fear of God. We just want to do it our own way. This This is mankind in general. Look at the big picture of what is happening in our world today. You have Australia. Droughts. Fires and floods. Floods killing as many as 600,000 cattle not long ago. Then the fires came. And they killed, I don't know what the figure is, I don't think anybody knows, but they say a billion, a billion animals, wild animals were killed because of the fires. Brexit has occurred. And you could be on either side of it, but... What it's done is thrown Europe into chaos. And right at the time of Brexit and the chaos trying to be sorted out there, what happens? The coronavirus hits and puts huge financial constraints on these countries. And Europe is beginning to splinter and pull apart. The whole European Union may come apart. We know that at the end, there will be ten nations or kings that give their power over to one. We don't see that final configuration as yet. But how will what we see happening now play into that and eventually bring that about? We see SARS, MERS, Ebola, swine flu, COVID-19, 
Can the world not connect the dots in any of these things that are happening? Locust plagues in Africa and the Middle East, geopolitical upheavals, wars in the Middle East, Central and South America we see unrest everywhere as people are dissatisfied with their governments. South Africa, their credit rating has been reduced to junk status. The world is hurting. All over the world, it's hurting. The rise of strong men or strongman leaders as the world sinks into chaos. We see very strong leaders, not necessarily good leaders, but strong leaders. People who are willing to make decisions even contrary to what others think of it. We have Xi Jinping, we have Vladimir Putin, we have Donald Trump, we have Benjamin Netanyahu, we have uh, Recep Erdogan in Turkey. We have these strong leaders, and there are, in fact, there have been whole articles on this subject, the rise of the strong man. And when strong men rise, then one of two things can happen. They can solve the problem, or they can create a bigger problem. It usually starts out by solving certain problems, but then it ends up being Hitler or Mussolini or somebody else. Are we unable to connect the dots between our behaviors and what is happening in our world? The question arises, how should we pray during this crisis? Well, again, I want to refer to Dr. Douglas Winnale's World Ahead comments that were read to us, uh, Conditions for Mercy, and some of you have that available to you. I think we need to think about those things, that God is a merciful God, and He's giving us time to change and to repent, and He gives us warning, warning, but eventually, uh, you know, there's a there's day of reckoning that comes. And Daniel, the ninth chapter, gives us a good indication of how we ought to pray. Here is Daniel, who was fasting during this time. Notice it in Daniel, the ninth chapter. And verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Eternal, my God, and made confession. Notice he made confession. And he said, O Lord, great and awesome God. He exalted God for who he really is, the creator of all that, that exists, the whole universe. Great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him. Notice, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. Notice that that's part of it, that we should keep His commandments. We have sinned. So even though we keep His commandments, which one of us can say that we are without sin? As Jesus said, let Him cast the first stone. No, we have our sins. He's talking to people... Uh, writing this, uh, he says, and those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. We didn't heed those warnings that came from the prophets, just as our nations are not heeding the warnings that go out from this uh, you know, th- this uh, particular uh, organization, this church, and tomorrow's world. And we're not the only ones out there, but, uh, you know, 
when you look at who's really out there saying these things, well, we are. We don't know about the rest. That's, that's up to others what they're going to do. But, you know, people are not heeding these warnings. We have young people that grow up in the church. Their parents teach them a certain way of life. They sit in church services and they get on their own and they just go off and do their own thing. And then when they're hurting badly enough, we hope they'll come back. We hope they'll turn around. But sometimes they have to hurt pretty badly before they do. He says, Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries, to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. I'll leave the remainder of this chapter for you. That's the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, where he cries out to God when he is fasting. And, you know, for some of us, we've just gotten complacent. We just think that things are going to go on forever and ever. But this crisis shows us just how fast our world can change. You know, Noah was building an ark for a long time. And he was also a preacher of righteousness. He was telling the people. There came a day when he went aboard and they shut the doors and the people started scrambling for higher ground. That day is coming. It's not off forever. As I wrote to you, the second reason for this fast is the current COVID crisis. Yes, we all hope and pray that this pandemic will be short-lived and that we and our loved ones will be long-lived. That's normal. But we must understand the bigger picture that this pandemic and other calamities occurring in our world today are the result of mankind's rebellion against his Creator. It may have started in China, but we've got our part to play in it with our actions and our decisions and our, our governments and all the rest that we do. Yes, we ought to cry out to God to spare our brethren and to be merciful to other human beings who do not understand the real cause of our problems today. We must also pray for our leaders, both national and church leaders. I'll refer to you, uh, for you to 1 Timothy uh, the uh, uh, second chapter, verses 1 and 4, that we are to pray for all men, and we are to pray for kings and leaders. God makes that very clear. To have courage and make wise decisions. And we need to pray for God to open doors for us to reach this troubled world with a message of repentance, showing our sins and what the results will be, but giving hope of the coming kingdom of God for those that are willing to change. Now is a time to awake from any illusions that everything will go on as normal. Our world is not going to be the same after this. Consider how quickly our world has changed. No, we're not at the end yet. We understand that. But we may be at the beginning of ominous times leading to the end. So let us examine ourselves. Let us humble ourselves. Let us prepare for Passover. Let's, let's use this day of fasting to look inside and say, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to change? And let us pray for God to open doors to warn this world of what is to come 
and to give hope to a dying world.